This Parsha podcast is dedicated by Debbie Gelb in honor of Jeff Gelb and Suzanne and David Gelb and families, wishing them all a happy Hanukkah. May there be peace for Israel and for all the Jewish people. Before we begin this week's Parsha podcast, I have a recommendation, a shameless plug. I would love if you would listen to the recent episode that I recorded on one of my other shows, This Jewish Life. I interviewed my dear friend, Yoshi Rosenbluth. He is an IDF reserve soldier who spent a month in Gaza on the front lines, and he talks all about it. And it is, to quote my friend David Block, it is a riveting episode. I would recommend that you give it a listen if you have yet to do so. And of course, my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Well, it's year eight of the Parsha podcast. It's still Hanukkah, and we're going to have three segments on Parsha's Mikates. And we're going to follow these segments chronologically, not in order of depth. You know, it's a little tricky because we're doing dad this year, deep and deeper. And if we do multiple segments, there's the dilemma. What do we do? Do we do it in order of the Parsha? Or do we do it in order of depth? We're still ironing out the kinks in this year's Parsha podcast plan, but we will follow the chronology of the Parsha and begin with the first verse. The verse tells us, Vayimitetz, it was Mitetz, that's the name of the Parsha. It was at the end of two years of days, Shnosayim Yomim, and Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he is standing in his dream at the edge of the river. That's the first verse of our parsha. And when we go a bit deeper, we find some very interesting ideas. So just for starters, what does the word mitates mean? So, of course, Rashi tells us. Mitates, it means like misof at the end. Every time it says the word kates, it is a reference to sof, which means the end. So kates and sof, Rashi tells us, they're basically synonymous Kates means end, and sof means end, and mitates means at the end or from the end. Okay, so that's the beginning of our parsha. It was at the end of two years. At the end of last week's parsha, Joseph was in prison, and he had a interaction with Pharaoh's disgraced ministers, and he proved his tremendous wisdom and capability and dream-interpreting prowess, and he urged and coached the chamberlain of the wine, who will be reinstated to press his taste before Pharaoh, but he forgot about him, and now it's two years later, at the end of two years, and Pharaoh has a dream. And Rashi tells us that mitates means at the end, and it means like misof, at the end. So question number one, just to get us started here, warming up. If the word mitates means the same thing as misof at the end, simply write misof. It should be parshas misof. That maybe doesn't rhyme as well. Mitates has a has a nice ring to it. But why would the Torah use a more nuanced word that Rashi needs to tell us that, oh, this word mitates actually means misof, just say misof, and that should be sufficient. Question number one. Question number two. The next two words after mitates, it says shnasayim, which means two years. Shana is a year. Shnasayim is two years. And then it adds another word. Shnasayim yamim, two years of days. If it simply said, vayim mitates shnasayim, it was at the end of two years, I would know everything I need to know, you would imagine. Why does the verse have this unusual formulation? Vahimi Tetzel was at the end of Shnasayim Yamim of two years of days. Two interesting questions to get us started. If this is all we had, these questions, they wouldn't be so earth shattering. But I saw a comment in the Megala Amukos, one of our favorite books here on the Parsha podcast. And this comment was, it was earth-shattering, and it's an idea that I never heard before. 
and I'm happy to share with you. He tells us that the word kates, it means at the end, right? Kates, end. But it has some more subtle meanings to it or subtle inferences to it. It connotes, says the Megala Amukros. It's an inference to the end of days, not just the end of a given thing, but it's, it's a hint to the ultimate end of this world. When this world wraps up, we have Messiah and we have the preparation for the next world at the end of all this world. That is a term that's always associated with the word kates. For example, in Parshas Vayechi, when Jacob gathers his children and he gives them his deathbed blessings. So there we see that the word kates is used to connote the end of days. Jacob wanted to reveal the kates to them, but he forgot it and he, he pivoted. He, he improvised and he started telling them something else. But there are other areas, other citations, other sources where the word kates is applied to the end of days. So the Megal Lucas tells us this verse about Pharaoh's dream, two years, two years of days after the events of last week's parsha. that's a hint to the end of days. Okay, you have my attention. What's going on over here? He says like this, the Talmud tells us that there is a deadline. There's the end point. The year 6,000, and again, we're not counting the years since the creation of the universe or even the creation of Earth. It's since Adam, since Adam, the first protagonist or antagonist, but the main character of the Garden of Eden story in Genesis. We start counting from him. Okay. The year 6,000 from Adam, that's the end point of this world as it currently stands, or as it's currently oriented. And by that point, Messiah must come. And then there's the, the seventh millennium, and there's a lot of ideas behind this, and it's a very advanced concept in uh, Jewish eschatology. And we talk a lot about this on one of our other shows, Torah 101, which I'm sure y'all are all subscribers and veteran listeners to already. We spent 16 episodes on Messiah, going through it from every conceivable angle. The year 6,000 is important because that's the deadline. We didn't know when Messiah, Messiah is coming. Maybe it's coming today. Maybe tomorrow. It could come any day. Almost any day. Can't come on Shabbos, we're told. But it could come in 2023 still, in 2024, in 2028, in 2104. We, we don't know when it's going to come, right? That's It's a surprise, right? And it's really contingent upon our behavior. But there's an endpoint. There's a deadline by which it must come for good or for bad. And that's the year 6000. That's the endpoint. And there's a certain model that follows like a week. You have six days, then you have one day of Shabbos. Every day of God, the verse tells us in Psalms, is equivalent to a thousand years of us. So God's week and Shabbos, so to speak, will be 6,000 years and 1,000 years of Shabbos. And therefore, this earth, this world, this current manifestation of the will of God, this current enterprise of existence, it's like Shabbos. You have 6,000 years followed by 1,000 years. And thus, at the end of this sixth millennium, by that time, Messiah must be here. It already has to begin the next epoch. It's actually pronounced epic. Epic of history has to begin. So here's the question. What happens then? The times of Messiah, there's a lot of work for us to do. Messiah is all about preparing for the afterlife. And you have to rebuild the temple and reinstitute all the laws and reestablish the Sanhedrin. If there's a deadline, the year 6,000, and you just have a few minutes, a few days, a few years till then, there's a problem. What if we only have a moment for Messiah? We only have the temple for a moment? There's so much work to do. And 
what do we do when we get really close to the year 6,000? And we know that there's a ton of work that we need to still accomplish times of Messiah before the year 6,000. And that's the deadline. And as we approach, we'll have so much work to do and very little time to do it. Interesting question. Let's assume, of course, we hope Messiah comes you know, today. We're ready. Well, I don't know if we're all ready, but at least in principle, ideally, we should be ready. We should be anticipating and awaiting Messiah every day. But what if it comes later on and it's it's really close to the deadline and Messiah comes and we have so much work to do and not much time to do it? Says the Megalomukos, he cites a verse, the verse in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 2. The verse is talking about the expansion, the expansion of our tent and the expansion of our dwelling place. The prophet is foretelling that space will expand. And a small amount of space that can maybe, you know, fit a small amount of things, of mass, it will expand to be able to include much more than what it was previously. Says the Megalomukos, this is the idea that was a novel one to me. Just as space will expand, so will time. Now, mind you, this is being written in the early 1600s before the whole notion of relativity of time and space were, were popularized. Space will expand, the verse tells us, so will time. And every day will actually be a year. So suppose it's the year 5999. You've only one one year before the year 6000. And you may be a bit, I don't know, depressed, disenchanted, disturbed by the fact that even when Messiah comes that day, you only have a year left. There's so much work to do and there's so little time to do it. It's only one year. Says the Megalomukos in our parsha. He says that actually, if it's the year 5999 and Messiah comes that day, you don't just have one year of Messiah. Every day will be expanded to be a year. So you'll have 365 years before the year 6000. How do you like that? Novel idea. And he cites another verse in Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 63, verse 4. And the verse equates a year and a day. And he cites another verse in Micah chapter 7, verse 15. The verse declares that Messiah will mirror the Exodus. And as we know, in the times of the Exodus, a year and a day were equated. Every day that the spies scouted the land, maliciously scouted the land, and brought back a damning report, that resulted in a year of the nation wandering in the wilderness. So they took 40 days to scout, to traverse the land, and that resulted in the nation being condemned to 40 years in the wilderness. So we see a, we see a precedent that one day equals a year. Well, that will happen also in times of Messiah. One day will equal a year. Says the Megal Mugris, this is hinted to in our parsha. Mikates, not Misof. It was at the Mikates, at the end, specifically using a term that's always associated with Messiah. And what does it say at the end? Of years of days. Every day will be a year's time. And there will be plenty of time to get whatever we need to get done. We'll get it done. All sorts of secrets. It's only the first verse of the Parsha. And we're already not just deep. It's deeper. It's deepest. He found two oddities about the verse. And he shows that it specifically mutates not myself. And it's just I mean two years of days. And this is a hint that in the Kates, in the end of times, in the Messianic times, it will be years of days. Fascinating. And that is segment number one. Segment number two is in the same verse. It was Mikates at the end of Shnasayim Yamim, two years of days, 
Ufaro and Pharaoh was cholem, was dreaming. What does it mean that Pharaoh was dreaming? It means he had a dream, right? But it doesn't say that Pharaoh had a dream. It says Pharaoh was dreaming. And the Arachaim asks a sharp question. He says that if this verse was be written properly, it would say, Cholam, Paro, Pharaoh, dreamt, or Vayachalom, and Pharaoh had a dream. When it says Paro, Cholam, it means Pharaoh is dreaming. Why would it use this unusual use of term? Why would it say, and Pharaoh, it was at the end of two years and Pharaoh was dreaming. That's how, how you interpret, how you translate this verse. And it should have said at the end of two years and Pharaoh had a dream. It's not what it says. Again, it's a, a very sharp reading of the verse. And if that was all we had, okay, you know, it's a little bit of a, of a, of a textual, inartful use of word. We could kind of deal with it. But his answer, will knock your socks off. He says that perhaps, I mean, he, he gives a few answers. One of the answers is, it was at the end of two years of days and Pharaoh was dreaming. The way you read this, it was at the end of two years of days of Pharaoh dreaming. Meaning, for two years, Pharaoh had this dream, the dream of seven cows being consumed by seven frail cows, seven healthy ones, by seven weak ones, seven robust ears of grain being swallowed, being consumed by seven pitiful ones. For two years, Pharaoh had the identical dreams each night. But every night he had those dreams and he forgot them. Now, of course, these, these dreams... They caused Pharaoh ultimately to seek Joseph, to seek his dream interpretation services. And when Joseph very skillfully interpreted the dreams, he was promoted to viceroy of Egypt. And every night for two years, Pharaoh had the same dream. But he forgot it. And now it's two years later. It's at the end of two years of this dream. And now Pharaoh finally remembered it and was very desperate to seek an interpretation. That's what the Arachim says on this verse, verse 1 of our Parsha. Now, I'll tell you something really cool. This idea actually precedes the Arachim. It's found in the Midrashic literature, but it's found in what's known as the Midrash Hagadol, which is a work of Midrash that was not discovered, well, it wasn't widely discovered and published until the 19th century, so after the Archaim passed. So the Archaim offers an interpretation, and we now know that it was already featured in the Midrashic literature that came much earlier. He, he intuited that this must be the explanation. But what's the deeper message over here? You know, if Pharaoh had the dream and he forgot the dream each night anyhow, why is it important? Why is it salient that he had these dreams in a recurring fashion? We know that Rashi tells us that that Joseph really should have gotten out earlier, but he had to languish in prison because he had too much reliance on the butler, and he he said to the butler, you know, speak to Pharaoh, and maybe he should have just relied on God more, and that's why he was condemned to two more years in prison. But if Joseph had to be two more years in prison, then why is it necessary to have this dream every night for two years, only to forget it upon awakening? What's the deeper message here? So the Hasidic masters, they say something unbelievable, something that really reshapes our understanding of the idea of divine oversight, divine providence, divine intervention. Joseph had maybe a bit of a lapse in his reliance on God when he asked the butler to petition Pharaoh for him. Maybe someone like Joseph, he should have relied on God totally and not even done anything to advance his cause. Just just sit back and let God save you. So 
Joseph was penalized for his insufficient faith, at least on his level, and he was given two more years of incarceration. Well, what happened after two years? After two years, Joseph got out of prison and was was elevated, promoted to become viceroy of Egypt to fulfill those dreams. There's no way that had Joseph still had the insufficient faith and the over-reliance on forces outside of God, that he would have been elevated. Over the course of these two years, Joseph restored his reliance on God. And once he had the requisite reliance on God and the non-reliance on anything else, that's when the plan was sprung into action and Pharaoh had the dream. This time he remembered it. But what would have happened had Joseph mended, so to speak, or elevated his level of reliance on God earlier? Let's say after a year, Joseph reached the requisite level of faith that's fitting someone of Joseph's caliber. Would he still need to wait another year in prison? This is what the Orachim is telling us. Every single night for those two years, Pharaoh had the identical dream. This dream, the same dream that would have resulted in Joseph's freedom, Joseph's ascent to monarchy. Everything was in place. Everything was ready. The curtains, the drapes were all measured. The only thing that was missing was Joseph. He had to get ready for this as well. So every night, Pharaoh's having the dream. And Joseph's not quite ready, so Pharaoh forgets the dreams. Once Joseph has sufficient or total reliance on God, at the end of two years, Pharaoh remembers the dream suddenly. And that very same day, Joseph is ushered out of the pit and is given new clothing and is showered and meets Pharaoh, impresses, wows Pharaoh and his advisors, is elevated to viceroy of Egypt, gets Pharaoh's ring, is bedecked in the garments of royalty, has the triumphal cavalcade throughout the city, and becomes the king. Second in command. Functionally, effectively, a king. This is, I think, a, a little bit of a paradigm shift for us. We may have it backwards. Of course, we know that the Almighty has a plan for us. And he has a vision for us. And he has something that he wants us to accomplish. There's a destiny that's planned out for us, but we need to do our part, right? We, we believe in a partnership system where the money sets us up, he positions us to succeed, but we need to overcome our challenges and we need to triumph in the difficulties. We have to over, overcome those obstacles, overcome those impediments. And when we do that, the Almighty will kind of roll out the red carpet for us and enable us to achieve our legacy, our destiny. So we need to pray, and we need to overcome the Yitzhara, and we need to study, and we need to elevate ourselves spiritually in order to unlock the Almighty's part, so to speak. That's how we think. But here it seems like it's, it's the opposite. Everything is already in place. It's all, it's all there. It's all ready to go. And the only thing that's missing is not anything from God's end. It's only from our end. The Almighty is anticipating us to make the move, us to submit the prayer, us to spiritually elevate ourselves and earn that merit. And we become worthy of the divine aid, divine providence, divine assistance, divine salvation. That was always there. It was always there. Pharaoh's always been dreaming. For two years, nonstop, Pharaoh is having the same dream over and over and over and over again. So that should Joseph be worthy, everything else is ready to go. And there's an amazing story that accompanies this Hasidic idea. 
the Baal Shem Tov. So this is the founder of the Hasidic movement, one of the great giants of Jewish history. He was traveling with one of his students. And the student is very thirsty. And they're far away from any civilization or any source of water. And the Baal Shem Tov tells his student, you need water. And you feel like you're so parched and you're so thirsty. You have to have faith in God. You have to have total reliance on God. The Almighty will take care of you. Trust him. He'll send you the water. Okay, so he he trusts God. He dedicates himself completely to God. And they meet someone. They meet um, some sort of peasant. And this man is seems kind of haggard. And he's looking for his horses that he lost three days ago. And he says, for three days I'm chasing down my horses. Have you seen my horses? And they said, we don't see your horses, but do you maybe have any water? And he says, sure. And he pulls out some water and gives it to the student. And he drinks it. And the Baal tells him, after this peasant leaves, three days ago, your water was already being sent to you. It was already being sent to you. But you had to have the faith to effectuate it, to actually summon it, to have it come, come to you. It was, your salvation was already set into place. It was set into motion three days ago. Before you were even thirsty, before we even started our journey, this man was sent there and, and the Almighty sent him to bring you water. It was already. You need to dedicate yourself to God. And the thing that was always there will surface. Very beautiful idea. And that brings us to segment number three. After Joseph impresses Pharaoh and his servants with his wisdom, there's a, a flurry of, of rapid developments that sees Joseph being catapulted, being elevated, being promoted to viceroy of Egypt. Pharaoh tells him this is already chapter 41, verse 39. There's no one as wise as you, as gifted as you. You'll be in charge of everything. I'm, I'll only be elevated above you just with the throne but you'll functionally run the entire country. I have placed you over the entire country of Egypt. And Pharaoh moves his his ring and places it on the hands of Joseph and dresses him in the garments of royalty and places a golden necklace upon his neck. And then he takes him for a ride about town. He takes him on the cavalcade of the king and they announced before him, Avrech, this, this master of wisdom who's so young in years, this wunderkind. And Joseph is now in charge of all of Egypt. And Pharaoh tells him again, I'm Pharaoh, but you're in charge. No one will move an inch in this country without, without you. Pharaoh renames Joseph or gives him a new name, Tzafnas Paneach, which means the one who's able to reveal the hidden ciphers, the hidden secrets. And then we read about Joseph's wife. He gives him Asnas, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On. Joseph gets a new job, promotion, lots of promotions, and a new wife. Her name is Asnas. And she's the daughter of Potipharah. So Rashi says, who, who's this woman? Remember Potiphar? Potiphar, the man who bought Joseph as a slave, and the man whose wife, Mrs. Potiphar, she's the one who accused Joseph of attempted rape, which is the reason that Joseph ended up in prison. Well, he has a daughter. Nice to meet you. Her name is, her name is Asnas. And that's who Joseph married. Very interesting. Now, Rashi already told us about this union. Perhaps you recall Rashi to chapter 39, verse 1. Rashi is 
asking the question why the episode of Tamar and Judah is inserted into the storyline of Joseph. Joseph is sold. He's hated by his brothers. They sell him. And then at the end of the parsha, this is last week's parsha, of course, we have Joseph going on down to Egypt and the whole story that happened afterwards. But in between, inserted into the storyline in somewhat of an awkward way, is the whole story, the whole episode of, of, of Judah and Tamar. So Rashi is trying to figure out why was it designed like that? Why was it placed like that? So first, firstly, he tells us that the reason why Judah was demoted was because of his lack of action in preventing the sale of Joseph. But then he tells us that the episode of Tamar, where she takes very radical action to bear a child with Judah or Judah or one of his kids, that is somewhat similar. It resembles, on a spiritual level, Mrs. Potiphar's, her propositioning of Joseph. Just as Tamar was so desirous of bearing a child from Judah, so too Mrs. Potiphar. She wanted to have a child with with Joseph. Because she saw, this is what Rashi tells us, chapter 30, verse 1. She saw in the stargazers that she will ultimately, she'll have descendants from Joseph. And therefore she said, I have to be with Joseph. That's why she was so covetous of of Joseph. But she didn't know that actually she will have descendants from Joseph. But it's not going to be from her. It'll be from her daughter, Asnas, who will marry Joseph and bear Joseph's children. Interesting backstory here. Now the Midrash adds that when Mrs. Potiphar accused Joseph of a terrible crime, so really this is an executable offense. At least it was in Egypt. But Joseph was just merely imprisoned. He wasn't executed. And the reason why, says the Midrash, is because Asnas, she knew what happened. And she told her father what happened. And she says, actually, it's mom who's guilty, not Joseph. And for that reason, Joseph was spared the execution. And says the Midrash, as a result of this, Asnas, she merited to have, to bear two of the tribes of Israel together with Joseph because she intervened and she took necessary steps to prevent Joseph from being killed because she saved one of the tribes of Israel. She merited, she earned the spiritual merit to bear some of the tribes of Israel herself, and thus she ended up marrying Joseph and bearing Ephraim and Manasseh, who will go on to become, to be elevated as tribes of Israel. So this is interesting. Joseph, after the whole story, comes back to Potiphar and marries Potiphar and Mrs. Potiphar's daughter. Now, the sources offer two approaches as to the exact relationship between between Asnas and the Potiphar's. So simply put, she's the daughter. Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar, they have a daughter, and she's Asnas, and she marries Joseph. And the commentaries add that maybe the reason why Joseph sought to marry her specifically is because Potiphar knew a secret about Joseph that he was a slave. And Joseph did not want Potiphar to reveal this to everyone that would undermine Joseph's legitimacy as a king. He was a, he was a candidate for blackmail. And therefore, as a way to kind of bind himself to Potiphar and to align their, their agendas, the, to incentivize Potiphar to want Joseph's betterment, he married his daughter, kind of like the, um, the European monarchs. Let's just, let's all intermarry and thus maybe we could avoid avoid wars. So that's an idea that the commentaries say. But in a few different citations in the Midrash, we find an alternative 
connection between Asnas and the Potiphar's. The Midrash tells us that she was the adopted daughter of Potiphar. She wasn't the biological daughter of Potiphar. She was adopted. And in fact, the Midrash tells us further that her actual parentage, listen to this, her actual parentage were none other than Shechem and Dina. You recall that story. In Parashas Vayishlach, Shechem, who was the, the prince of the city of Shechem, so don't confuse the person and the city, Shechem, he desires Dina, and he takes her, and he assaults her, and he rapes her. And then he suffers the wrath of Shimon and Levi when they come and they wipe out the whole city, kill Shechem, and take their sister back with her, with them. But the Midrash tells us that actually this relationship between Shechem and Dina produced a daughter. And that daughter is Asnas. Well, how'd she end up in Egypt? If she's in Shechem as the daughter of Dina and Mr. Shechem, the actual person named Shechem, how'd she end up in Egypt? So the Midrash tells us, listen to this, that the sons of Jacob were, were not too thrilled with this, with this daughter, because she reminded them of, of Shechem and, you know, she was a, a living testament to this terrible crime that happened over here. And they thought it was improper to have this young girl, this baby around. Because, you know, she's a, she's an embodiment of this terrible crime. So they wanted to kill her. And Jacob intervenes says, no, we're not going to kill her. Instead, he says, I'll take care of her. And this is all the Midrash. He, he wrote a golden amulet. And upon this amulet, he wrote the name of the Almighty, of God, the name that we're not allowed to pronounce. In another version of the Midrash, it, it cites some additional writing that Jacob etched upon the amulet. He wrote the following, whoever cleaves to you is cleaving to the descendants, the progeny of Jacob. And with this golden amulet on her neck, he sent her away. And then in one version of the Midrash, it says that the angel came and took her to the house of Potiphar. In another version of the Midrash, it's not the angel who brings this girl to Potiphar, It's actually Jacob who brings her all the way down to Egypt. And then Potiphar discovers her and discovers this amulet and says, okay, I'm adopting her. But regardless, she is raised in the Potiphar family and she goes on to marry Joseph. Now, another thing here, listen to this. When Joseph was taken in his triumphal cavalcade, so the verse tells us, not the verse in our parsha, but the verse in chapter 49, verse 22, this is when Jacob is giving the deathbed blessings to his sons. He mentions that Joseph has so much charisma, he has so much grace. Benos tsa'ada aleishur. The girls, they clamored atop the ramparts. And Rashi explains that all the girls, they climbed on top of the ramparts of Egypt because he's being paraded throughout the cities and he was so beautiful and so charming and so handsome and so charismatic that all the girls, they were clamoring on top of the ramparts to get a little bit of a glimpse of Joseph. And the Midrash tells us that everyone wanted Joseph. He was the most eligible man about town. And they all took their valuables and their gold and their jewelry and they just threw it at him. He was being pelted by jewelry. Never wanted to get his attention. Now, Asnas, she did not have any jewelry aside from that amulet. So she took it and she threw it. And Joseph sees this amulet, 
And it says on it, the name of God, it says on it, whoever cleaves to me, cleaves to the family of Jacob. And he realizes this is, this is someone really special. He hunts her down and he marries her. Now, a lot of interesting backstory here. Now, later on, when Jacob and Joseph reunite, so they reunite in Netri's Parsha, spoiler alert, they're going to show up in Netri's Parsha. Jacob's going to come down to Egypt. But in the following Parsha, so the beginning of Parsha's Vayechi, Jacob asks to see the sons of, of Joseph. And he asks, who are you? And the verse tells us 48, 9, Joseph told his father, Banaihim, these are my sons, that God gave me bazeh with this. Says the Midrash that Joseph actually showed Jacob the amulet. The same amulet that, uh, that Jacob made, that Jacob crafted for his illegitimate granddaughter, who now marries, she's also now his daughter-in-law because she married Joseph. Thus, if you do the math here, Joseph married his niece, his half-sister's daughter with Mr. Shechem of blessed memory. Joseph shows the amulet to Jacob. And this is, he, he explains the batch. This is the batch story. That's how I married her. That's how I knew about her because of this amulet. I will note that marrying your niece is not a violation of the prohibited relationships of the Torah, though it might not be advised. Okay, now, but everyone make their own decisions. Now, I had, a, I had a thought about this. We know that Jacob, when he, he didn't really participate, but he, he earned the city of Shechem, and he says that he conquered it with his bow and with his sword, and he gives it, he gives it to Joseph. And that's why the, the city of Shechem was always in the lands apportioned to Joseph. In fact, Joseph's tomb is, is still today in the city of Shechem. So chapter 48, verse 22 Jacob says, I'm going to give this the city of Shechem that I earned, that I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. I'm giving it to, to Joseph. So if you just map this out, Joseph marries the, the daughter of Dina that she bore together with Shechem, who was the heir, who was the crown prince of the city of Shechem. And thus, the descendants of Joseph are actually also the descendants of Shechem, the son of Hamar, the sovereign of Shechem. And thus, they actually, even if Jacob did not take it from them, they would be the the only remaining heirs of, of Shechem and Hamar, which is very interesting. Now, uh, just one more fascinating idea here. The Hasidic masters point to an event that preceded the birth of Dina. A lot of different characters over here. There's Jacob, his four wives, his 12 sons, his one daughter, Dina. She's the one who, unfortunately, is raped and impregnated by Shechem. But before Dina was born, so at that time, Joseph was not yet born, and Leah, she already had six sons. And the two maidservants, Billa and Zilpah, each had two. So Jacob already had 10 sons. And it was well known that Jacob would only have 12 sons, no more. And therefore, Rachel, there's only two more sons available. So when Leah became pregnant, this is brought down in Rashi in chapter 30, verse 21. So she's now pregnant. And if this is a boy, well, it's boy number seven. And that means that there's only one son that is still left to be born. And if that son is born to, to Rachel, she'll have only one and she'll have even less than the maidservants. And therefore, she says that Dina, 
she was actually destined to be a boy. But the word Dina means a judgment. Leah made a judgment with herself. And she said that if this is a male, then my sister Rachel, she'll have even less, even fewer, no, don't say less, even fewer children, fewer sons, fewer tribes than the maidservants. So she prayed, Rashi tells us. And this male was transformed into a female. Sounds pretty progressive. And we had already today in the podcast, we had relativity. And now we have this idea that's featured in Rashi again, that that Dina was supposed to be a male, or she started off as being a male in utero. But Leah prayed, and it was converted into a female. And that's what she's called Dina, which means a judgment, because 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 Leah did a judgment. She she judged herself, and she said, this is the proper thing to do. Some have suggested that Dina may have exhibited some residual, vestigial male tendencies which may have gotten her into some trouble. But here's the idea that the Hasidic masters share. What would have happened had Leah not done a judgment to herself and not prayed to transform Dina, Dina in utero, into a female? Had she done nothing, she would have had another boy, boy number seven, tribe number seven. And then, of course, well, Rachel could only match out at one at one tribe because there would already be 11 sons, 11 tribes accounted for. So Dina did something really selfless, right? She prays and she has her son in Euro transformed, converted into into a female. And it's a selfless act, right? Because, you know, she's giving up the rights to have a tribe come from her. But she's so righteous that she's willing to give that up. She's willing to forfeit that just so that Rachel doesn't have only one fewer than the, the maidservants. So Leah's displaying here remarkable selflessness that she's even willing to give up to forfeit a tribe so that her sister does not suffer. But if you play out the stories, what does she end up? She ends up with a daughter named Dina. Dina has an unfortunate interaction with Hamar's son, Shem, the crown prince of the city of Shem. Devastating. It produces an illegitimate daughter, Everyone wants to kill his daughter. Like, how could you have this little Asnas baby? How could she be around here? How how can we have this living testament of that terrible crime? So Jacob makes an amulet and sends her off to Egypt, either with the angel or just drops her off at the the gates of, of Egypt. She's adopted by this Potiphar guy. But if you play out the story, you play out the story. Asnas marries Joseph through that whole, that whole, series of events. And she has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Parshish Vayichi, Ephraim and Manasseh are elevated. They're not grandsons of Jacob. They're like Reuven and Shimon. They're elevated into being like tribes. So Leah, you may have thought she gave up a tribe by davening, by praying to have the child within her converted into a female. And maybe she would have done it anyhow. You know what? She forfeited on behalf of her sister. It's just a selfless act. And she lost the tribe. Okay. But no, no, no. If you play out the whole story, not only did she not lose a tribe, she got an extra one. Because now her daughter Dina's daughter, Asnas, two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are tribes. And thus, Leah is the matriarch, is the mother of not six tribes, not even seven tribes, but actually eight. Because you do the math, she ended up with two more, Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons 
of Joseph and Asnas. Asnas is the daughter of Dina, the daughter of Leah. Leah didn't lose. You never lose when you forfeit, say the Hasidic masters. You never lose when you act selflessly. She actually gained. What a fantastic, splendid, deep, deeper than deep study of the personality of Asnas and the valuable lessons thereof. I appreciate your time. It means the world to me that you're listening, that you're joining me here in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. Like most of America, I'm a little congested. And I was worried, how am I going to do this podcast? I'm so congested. And I just I sat down over here. You probably, maybe if you have a very sharp ear, you could notice it's a little bit congested. But like a minute before I started recording, I had a tissue in my nose and I was, you know, just, uh, I'm so congested. How can I record? You sit down here and the Parsha podcast, just magical things happen. So I appreciate you for that. Thank you for your listenership. Thank you for your time. Have a wonderful day. Have a terrific, productive, uplifting rest of your week. And Shabbos Parshas Mikates. Mikates! We could think maybe about this end of days. What it's going to be like. Anticipate it. Await it. We're ready. We need salvation. We pray for the salvation of our brothers and sisters in the war zone. We pray for the soldiers, for the hostages. Pray for the Jewish people. Pray for ourselves. Pray for our children. Pray for our communities. May we hear only good news from each other and from the rest of our brethren. Have an incredible Shabbos. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com.